Welcome. Happy day before Friday. I am Jason Whitlock. This is Fearless with Jason Whitlock. And I got something great in store for us today. Really great. Uh, Uncle Jimmy still recovering. We sent him to the doctor for a checkup to make sure to clear the path so that we can get him hopefully back here in studio uh, at some point next week. Uh, he's still doing well, so we're excited. Uncle Jimmy will be returning to the show at some point very soon. Uh, Greg Couch is gonna join the show uh, today. He's written a piece uh, saying that Serena Williams should retire, that it's over. Uh, he's gonna join us later in the show. My good friend, former ESPN uh, employee, uh, work mostly in the boxing lane. Steve Kim, he's now left ESPN, works with Mario Lopez out in Los Angeles. Good friend of mine, those of you that follow me on social media, you've probably seen me and Steve engage, interact over uh, social media. He's gonna come join me after I start. I don't wanna call this a fire. This will be an inferno, a blaze. Uh, Everybody's been talking about what happened with Rachel Nichols yesterday. ESPN basically fired her. And I'm going to explain to you exactly what happened in the most provocative, interesting, and fascinating and accurate way you'll see anywhere in the media. ESPN president Jimmy Bataro is engaged in a prolonged war with the Taliban, commonly referred to in sports media circles as the BLM, LGBTQ+, Alphabet Mafia. Wednesday, under the tenets of Shah Maria Law, the Alphabet Mafia beheaded NBA broadcaster Rachel Nichols for private disobedience of identity politics guidelines. ESPN removed Nichols from its NBA coverage and canceled her show, The Jump. With a year left on her contract, According to reports, Nichols will no longer appear on the worldwide leader in sports. A year ago, Nichols, a white Jewish woman, gossiped with a male member of her tribe about ESPN management, handing black colleague Maria Taylor a job that had been contractually promised to Nichols. Unbeknownst to Nichols, her comments were accidentally recorded by a camera within her Orlando hotel room and subsequently shared with leadership of a Taliban cell headquartered in Bristol, Connecticut. Because Nichols made these inconsequential comments during the summer of 2020, the first holy holiday celebrating the death of career criminal St. George Floyd, the Alphabet Mafia placed a bounty on Nichols's career at ESPN. Working with Maria Taylor, the Alphabet Mafia newspaper of record, the New York Times, smeared Nichols as a bigot, forcing Jimmy Pataro to execute Nichols. Now, some critics are comparing Pataro to U.S. President Joe Biden, saying Pataro's submission to the sports media Taliban is analogous to Biden's catastrophic Afghanistan exit. The New York Post influential media critic Andrew Marchand published a column Wednesday night blaming Pataro for fumbling the Nichols-Taylor dispute. Writing, quote, in the history of sports media mismanagement, 
The way ESPN handled Rachel Nichols' situation may not be the worst, but it can make a case. The fiasco was the result of embarrassing, indecisive management from ESPN chairman Jimmy Pataro on down. More than a year ago, ESPN did not do anything of substance about Nichols' comments when they first found out about them. Nothing. Nada. End quote. It's a fair take. However, I disagree. I am far more sympathetic to Pataro's plight. Let me give some full disclosure here. ESPN rehired me in 2013 to found a website dedicated to covering the intersection of sports, race, and culture. Unfortunately, my black skin did not compensate for my woke shortcomings, my faith-based conservative values, and my toxic masculinity. I was a frequent target of Deadspin's attacks. ESPN fired me in 2015. Six years ago, I was Rachel Nichols, a sacrifice to the Alphabet Mafia. Pataro inherited the Alphabet War from his predecessor, former ESPN president John Skipper. From 2012 to 2017, Skipper surrendered complete control of the network to the terror group Deadspin and its infamous warlord Nick Ditton, the Osama bin Laden of the Alphabet Mafia. In mid-2017, I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal explaining the successful insurrection Deadspin pulled off in the Disney capital, capital of Cabal, Connecticut. Deadspin's insurrection was quite similar to the events on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. ESPN security opened doors and welcomed insurrectionists onto its campus. Many ESPN employees worked in a clandestine manner with Deadspin Proud Boys, Tommy Craggs, Tim Marchman, A.J. Delario, and single token alphabet nationalist, Greg Howard. Denton, the founder of Gawker Media, used Deadspin to bully ESPN into adopting the identity politics agenda. For years, Deadspin attacked ESPN executives relentlessly exposing embarrassing details about the sexual malfeasance of the network's executives and personalities. Fear of being a target of Deadspin's investigative team terrified ESPN leadership, especially Skipper. In 2018, Skipper was forced to resign when it became public that someone was using his cocaine addiction in an alleged extortion plot. I'm not making that up. Skipper resigned over a cocaine extortion plot. Skipper and ESPN's longtime head of human resources and Alphabet Mafia soldier Paul Richardson negotiated a secret peace agreement with Deadspin. Richardson was the longtime head of human resources for ESPN. The network prioritized identity above talent and merit in its own decision making. In front of the camera, Sexual identity, skin color, and gender drove ESPN to form the worst Monday Night Football booth in the history of the iconic show, pairing legendary NFL coach John Gruden with solid baseball play-by-play -play man Sean McDonough and talented sideline reporter Lisa Salters. During the broadcast of football games, 
Gruden and McDonough routinely express horror at the level of violence displayed. I'm not making that up. Behind the camera, the sexual identity, skin color, and gender agenda led the network to elevate female executives to supervising positions over studio shows, which led to no impact, mostly attractive female broadcasters landing high-priced hosting jobs on nearly every studio show. Skipper gave huge contracts to Michelle Beadle, Kari Champion, Jamel Hill, Katie Nolan, Samantha Ponder, etc., etc., etc. If you want to understand why Maria Taylor balked at a raise from $1 million to $5 million and left for ESPN, you have to understand the culture Skipper, Paul Richardson, and Deadspin created at ESPN. Taylor was radicalized by Taliban culture early in her career. She is quite talented, but ESPN raised her to feel entitled. Her black skin qualified her for reparations. Nichols is talented too. She's also accomplished as a journalist. She worked as a legit journalist at the Washington Post for eight years. Not Jeff Bezos's Washington Post, Nichols worked for the Graham family's Washington Post. Nichols fought her way to the top of sports media with hard work and cunning politics. She earned it. Yes, Nichols played woke to survive and thrive within corporate media, but she did not deserve this embarrassing public execution. She did not deserve the New York Times hit piece insinuating that she was racist, nor the savage and irresponsible tweets about her personal life. Nichols whined to a friend that identity politics stole an opportunity she had earned. Who wouldn't do that? Who hasn't done that? Nichols and Pataro are victims of a strategy Skipper and Paul Richardson implemented a decade ago. Pratar replaced Skipper in 2018 and immediately declared war on the sports media Taliban. Pratar demanded that ESPN sportscasters actually talk about sports rather than Twitter-approved political talking points. He bought out Michelle Beadle's $5 million a year contract when she could no longer hide her utter disdain for football, the primary ratings driver for all of sports television. Terrell bought out Jamel Hill when she chose sophomore political commentary over sophomore sports commentary. Patero declined to participate in the sports media fantasy that a cute Boston bartender, Katie Nolan, was the future of sports television. Patero and ESPN Executive Vice President Norby Williamson were having great success smoking insurrectionists out of their Bristol caves. Everything changed in the summer of 2020. That's when a Minneapolis police officer assisted fentanyl activist St. George Floyd in the destruction of his life. In terms of cultural change and impact, Derek Chauvin's knee far more powerful than Colin Kaepernick's. It resurrected the Taliban, aka the Alphabet Mafia. 
insurrectionists in sports media and across American culture glorified St. George Floyd so they could use him to seize power and exact revenge on the infidels who stray from or don't adhere to the politics of identity. What we've seen play out at ESPN over the past decade mirrors the rest of American society. Those of you applauding the death of Rachel Nichols, including those of you with black skin, you will be the next victim of Shah Maria Law. That is a fire. And if you can find the lie in that, please contact me directly. Go to my Twitter feed, go anywhere, anywhere. Please contact me and tell me where I'm wrong. I damn near want to give out my personal email address because I can't, I, I want someone to contact, tell me the lie. I left out a bunch of stuff I could have said. I know the ESPN culture inside and out and everybody who's laying down, the, the people that worked on the inside to help Deadspin, Bomani Jones, Rob King, Jamel Hill, Lebatard, the people that worked on the inside with Deadspin to overthrow and to make the whole network go woke. Know them all, work with them all. They think they have, <laughs> I've said this before and I hope people, I hope I don't dirty it up by saying it now, but what has happened to mainstream media because of technology and, and I hope Y'all can understand this. I hope I unpack it properly. But people are being blackmailed because there are no secrets anymore in America because of the internet. People that used to be predators or live secret lives, they don't live secret lives anymore. Everything you punch into the internet Someone is watching and recording it, and they're passing that information along and letting key people know, oh, that dude's in the closet. That dude likes child porn. That dude is cheating on his wife. It's all on the internet. It's all in your emails. It's everywhere and they're reading everything. The internet leaves a trail and the people overthrowing American culture have access to that information. If you tie everything I've been saying on this show together, when I think it was last week when I went off on the intelligence community and I was trying to insinuate to you all that the left is in bed with the intelligence community, the NSA, the FBI, the CIA. They're all in bed together. And the political left, 
and the military industrial complex. And I know, oh, Whitlock's got his tinfoil hat on. No, I don't. These are facts. Everybody knows it. All in bed together. The FBI is a left wing organization. There are no secrets. And I've seen executives and people in the media that had to hop on board with the political agenda of the left because they live in fear of being exposed. People ask me all the time, why are you so transparent? Because I know if I held on to my secrets, they would be used against me. So I tell it all, all of it. I, <laughs> because I'm not going to have somebody say, oh man, we got video or we got the receipts on that bachelor party Whitlock threw in Las Vegas. I already done told you how I got down. Oh, <laughs> that's right. We tracked down this woman that had an abortion. I already done told you. It's, you have, if you want to attempt to be honest in the media space, you have to live transparently. Because the people that want to control you, trust me, they're in search of your dirt. And they will use it to get you on board with their agenda. It happened at ESPN. John Skipper, very undisciplined. When you have a Coke habit that you can't control, there's a bunch of other habits that go along with that that you also can't control. When you're out chasing tail 24-7 and you're married, that gets out. And particularly if you chase and tail attached to a male body and you're male and you're living in the secret, that gets out. And they will let you know, we will expose this if you're not on board with what we're doing. I've just started a fire. Steve Kim's gonna join us here in a second, but first I wanna tell you about my friends. Built Bar. Rocky Road, double chocolate, mint brownie. These are just a few of the great flavors our sponsor over at Built Bar has for you to try. Built Bar has been a part of my daily routine here for almost two months now. These are so much better than the normal protein bars you've been trying for a while. Filled with tons of flavor, low in calories and sugars, these protein bars surprise me every time I try a new one but don't just take my word for it. Try them for yourself. Go to built.com and use promo code fearless to save 15% off your first order. Use promo code fearless for 15% off at built.com. Welcome back. Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I just started a fire and now we're gonna go roll, roll out to Los Angeles and uh, bringing my good friend, Steve Kim, former ESPN employee. He wrote and talked about boxing a lot. That was his area of expertise. Uh, I think Steve spent three, four years at, at the Worldwide Leader. 
and left in, in the past year. I think I have that accurate. Uh, as you can see, uh, Steve is a fine Asian gentleman, but I think in today's modern culture, we would call, I think Steve had very good high SAT scores, so we'd call him white adjacent. And uh, <laughs> we, well, Steve, go ahead. Well, a couple things there. Number one, I was only there for two years, and the last five or six months were probably the longest, worst decade of my life. And uh, you know what's funny about me? I am the anti-stereotypical Asian in the sense that my SAT scores would not have actually gotten me bounced from UCLA or Harvard unjustly. So I, in many ways, I, I'm still a minority, Jason, by every other check mark. Got you. Got you. All right. Well, anyway, Steve, you just heard me rant and rave about ESPN. You and I rant and rave about ESPN privately all the time. Uh, do you blame Jimmy Pataro for this Rachel Nichols, Maria Taylor mess? In many ways, I do. I, look, I think the situation was beyond him. And, and look, I want to make this clear. I was not high up on the ladder, but I am an observer. I saw how things worked there from the inside for about 24 months. Jimmy Pataro's the captain of the ship, and eventually this became his iceberg. And he got so immersed in it. In my view, the whole Rachel Nichols thing actually surprised me. I don't really pay attention to ESPN. I don't watch it outside of the boxing and the college football. And when the story came out that Rachel Nichols had been relieved of her duties, I was actually surprised because I analogized it to boxing. When there's a bad decision or something scandalous happens, there's a lot of outrage. People do their... Uh, you know, uh, virtue signaling. They talk about how angry they are, how wrong this is. And then the next fight comes along and we all move on and then we forget about it. And I felt as though you, you go back a couple of months ago, Jason, we were conversing a lot about this. That was, I believe, in June. And it was the hot story for about two weeks. You certainly covered it a lot. I saw a lot of the coverage. I think everyone had moved on. But in my view, what happened here was this is what Bobby Chesa Showtime used to call the pound of flesh, that if you were going to let Maria Taylor uh, walk away from the network or not come to an agreement to appease the other side, someone had to be sacrificed. And eventually that's what happened to Maria Taylor, in my view. Or excuse me, Rachel Nichols. Uh, yeah. And so I agree with they certainly did this to appease the little political faction that has a lot of control and say so within ESPN. But but I, I don't see Jimmy Pataro, I see him working on the other side or trying to work on the other side and trying to fix the broken culture within ESPN that John Skipper created. I think Pataro inherited these problems from John Skipper and then George Floyd and what happened in, two, in 2020 empowered all the little problem children left over from the Skipper regime. And so I, I think of Pataro as a victim and that this really falls on John Skipper. Well, this is certainly his mess, but you're right. You know, the first year and a half I was at the network, I thought it was a relatively good experience, very positive. I still look at it as a positive. But as soon as that happened, specifically with George Floyd, and then it became that really unrestful period with the pandemic and a lot of the, the civil and social unrest, I noticed the change that in terms of what you could write editorially, what you could put on social media. And again, I already know I'm at Disney, so there were handcuffs, there were restrictions that I hadn't really been under before. And it was a learning experience for me. It 
certainly, I think, ignited the flame, for lack of a better term. And you saw certain personalities really become bold and say things that I thought were just downright reckless and embarrassing. But here's the issue. They were actually rewarded for that type of behavior as long as you were on a certain side of the street politically and socially. And that became very troubling for me. I mean, Jason, I remember reaching out to you when I was still at ESPN. You were at your other place of employment. Um, And this is something that was a very seminal moment for me. It was that ESPN College Game Day roundtable they had, and it was Kirk Curbstreet, Maria Taylor, and a couple other hosts. And when Kirk Curbstreet started to tear up and cry, I remember sending you that clip, and I said, what the hell's going on? And I interpreted it as Kirk Curbstreet laying down his knee and telling Maria and everyone else, hey, I'm one of the good ones. Please leave me alone and I just felt as though that was some cosplay. And I began to really, at that point, and I believe that was in June or July of last year, really say to myself, do I want to be at this place for the long term? I remember that. I, 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 again, I'm very transparent. I consider Kirk Herbstreet a friend. He lives here in Nashville. Uh, so I, I'm dancing a bit here, just being honest. But yeah, I remember when he when that happened, when he cried on air, I saw it as another sacrifice to the woke gods that, you know, some people slaughter lambs. Some people, you know, uh, well, Stannis Baratheon in in Game of Thrones burned his daughter at the stake. Kirk Herbstreet said, I'll go on television and cry over George Floyd. And, and make Maria Taylor and the whole little woke group say, oh, Kirk's the greatest. And so that, that's kind of what you have to do to survive in corporate media at this point, particularly at a place like ESPN. I, and I'm asking you a question that maybe is better suited towards me, but I think people already know how I feel on this. Can a conservative survive and or thrive within ESPN's culture. I think Will Kane is an example that you can't, you can't be open about it. And personally, it's funny. I'm like you, Jason, I'm not really political. I, I would certainly say that socially I have certain views, but to be openly conservative, and I first noticed this with Kurt Schilling. Now, I, I actually think Kurt went overboard in a lot of ways that, look, you're a former major league baseball player. I believe you should be in the hall of fame. But he was so overt about it and so regular about it. But then you could argue, then so was Jamel Hill on her side. But again, it was the wrong politics for the wrong network. But can you be conservative at ESPN and thrive? Yes, if you muffle your viewpoints. And that doesn't mean just when you're on the air or when your byline is at ESPN. That also means social media. That's also feigning outrage when you see certain things, stating things that you may not actually mean. I mean, I'll give you an example. Last year where it cemented my departure just mentally, it was the day after the Jacob Blake situation. So the NBA was still in their bubble. And Chris Mannix, who's actually a friend of mine, covers the NBA and boxing for another network. He wrote a tweet basically saying, well, the Milwaukee Bucks have walked off the floor and they're so distraught because nothing has changed. And I'm just reading this and I'm actually working out. And I just said, you know, I'm going to respond to this. I basically wrote, well, Chris, I think this is a dose of reality that the athletes, I think, have to realize they're not that important. That's all I said. I didn't write All Lives Matter. I didn't say um, back the police. I didn't say any of that. What I basically said was the athletes have to do more than virtue signal. I'm not exaggerating within 
45 seconds, I got a phone call from our deputy editor, quote unquote, strongly suggesting I take that tweet down. And then my edit- other editors were pleading with me. And I said, yeah, look, I didn't want to cost anyone their jobs because I didn't want my behavior to have an adverse re- effect on anyone else that had families to feed. I think that was very selfish of me. But it pointed out to me that you could say a lot of things that are radical, but they have to be on the right side. So, yeah, I mean, you can be conservative at ESPN, but if you're openly conservative or if you're too public with it, you really have no shot. I'm not saying this to fish or inject myself uh, into your point of view, but I'm just reflecting on the conversations we've been having for the past couple of years. You told me it was very difficult or controversial to tweet out anything related to me or any of my work that that there was pressure at ESPN. That was a bad look at ESPN being in any way associated with me. Well, let me just point this out. There are very, very ardent supporters of you, though, Jason, but they can't be public with it. Uh, They have to be R. Kelly. They have to keep that on the down low. That that is very true. But there's other people, when I would mention your name, you would have thought it was like passing gas in church. It, It didn't go over well. And it became a point, and this is where the renegade spirit came in, where I said, you know what, I don't have a future here anyway. I really don't want to be here. Uh, I would make sure I retweeted all your stuff and other people like Curtis Schoon. I just, like, what are you going to do to me? Look, the greatest power you have is when you are willing to lose something. And I've heard you, and I mean, Clay Travis, the guy you work with in the past, a lot of these guys that are making pretty good salaries, they have three, four kids, they got college educations to pay for, and a mortgage to look out for it. And so do I to a certain degree. I have bills to pay also. But when you are willing to be independent and to say, you know what, I'm going to cut the cord, forget the safety net. Uh, I'm going to do something here. It's really liberating. And once I made that decision, Jason, around right around this time last year that I said, I'm not going to make this the next 10, 15 years of my career in life. Because Jason, I've been covering boxing since about 1996. It's not always a great living, but I've had great fun. I've always said the pace stinks, the perks are great. And for the first time ever, the job wasn't fun in a lot of ways. And and see, Jason, you I don't think you went through this because you were much higher on the totem pole than I was. I was just a beat writer for boxing. I couldn't do a lot of commentaries, but I felt at times that the editing became a suppression of thought bordering on censorship if it was not politically correct enough, if it was too honest, and if it was too bold. And that started to really grate at me. And I've told friends, it's only a half of a joke. Uh, if you're paying me Stephen A. Smith money, I would have accepted it. And, but problem was I was making Steve Kim money. That wasn't good enough. <laughs> Steve, it's funny you mentioned Stephen A. Smith. And I think Stephen A., to his credit has done the best job of trying to walk the line, not try to be too woke. Uh, Now, again, he's not, I mean, because just he's friends with Sean Hannity. He's throughout his time at ESPN. He's appeared on Fox News regularly. He hasn't hidden, hasn't hidden his friendship with Sean Hannity and others. So perhaps he is someone who's, gotten away with being a little bit conservative, but, but I, I'll give you another example I just thought of here on the fly of, of someone who retired from ESPN prematurely, I believe, because 
he's too conservative for ESPN, and that's Bob Lee, who used to be mm. the host of Outside the Lines. Bob is an actual conservative. I think he was forced to go along with the woke agenda at ESPN and eventually said, screw it, I'm going to retire. I've been here long enough. I've made enough money. I'm going to move on. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Stephen A. Smith is a brand by himself. I think he's one of the very few personalities at ESPN that if they left the four-letter network at that level of profile, that they'd be fine. There's been a lot of others that have left the cocoon of Bristol and the Disney Corporation and have suffered and have had basically, I don't want to say come crawling back, but they came back with a lower profile. Stephen A. Smith, to his credit, does get off code once in a while, as they say, but he also has the leverage because he derives a a certain type of profile he drives ratings and an audience but so i guess we call him elliot ness he's untouchable but 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 again going back to will kane will did some really good numbers on radio based on what i've seen and what i've read but it didn't give him that safe harbor maybe with stephen a smith him being black and not always being ultra liberal it may have given him that cushion and so anytime you go to ESPN, I think there's a great expectation from a personal standpoint. Oh, my God, professionally, this is great. I'm going to have a great time. It really isn't that way unless you're at that level. There's probably, I would guess, Jason, a dozen or so employees that we all know. We see them on a daily basis. We've seen them for years that are made men. OK, they're protected. They make a lot of money. But even that has a limit. And I was stunned to hear that Max Kellerman, someone that I've known for a very long time from the boxing beat, was basically jettisoned from the show. And I'm thinking, I know some of Max's statements that I completely disagree with, which is fine. And I'm thinking, man, if he's not woke enough for that network, I don't know if anyone's safe outside of those who are considered well, the minorities of choice. Well, hold for a second there in terms of Max. And I know Max as well. We've been to each other's homes. We're friends. Marcellus Wiley, obviously one of Max's best friends. I, I would disagree and say Max is woke enough. And that's hmm. why they're moving him to ESPN morning radio show. And that's why they're going to give him an afternoon show because hmm. he is so woke. He lives in a protective space because he got run off a of first take because Stephen A wants to host the show himself, period, end of story. That's the only reason why Max Kellerman is not on first take. Max Kellerman did not fail at first take. There was nothing really wrong with that show. Stephen A Smith's ambition, and I'm not criticizing Stephen A Smith, he wants to drive that show. He'd probably like to disappear Molly Quarum as well, but he can't do that at the moment. Uh, she's a woman and you know, he, he needs that cover. And so he's clipped Kellerman first, but trust me, he's got a plan for Molly Quarum as well, if he's going to stay at ESPN over the course of the next 10, 15 years, she will have to go and get out of his way as well or he'll move on to ABC and, and do something else there and have his own show. But, but I, I think Max Kellerman is actual proof that if you give your life to the woke gods, they will <laughs> protect you. And, 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 and they, he has given his life to the woke gods, and that's why he's 
going to be on the morning radio show at ESPN and have an afternoon show at ESPN. Yeah, it's hard to argue that. And, you know, I haven't I don't really talk to Max anymore. It's always interesting when people say he covers boxing. And I've always said, no, he watches boxing about 10 times a year. and, And God bless him. He has leveraged this into a great living. He's basically a decent guy, but I, I sometimes I have a hard time divorcing myself from the thought that he is playing a role of being Max Wilkerman because I, I don't he's too intelligent to think about some of the things that he does or, or the way he states them. But it is interesting with Stephen A. Smith. I'm actually a fan of his, even though I never watch him. I remember about 12, 13 years ago, he had his own show on ESPN called, I think, uh, quite frankly, with Stephen quite A. Frankly. Smith or something. And I, you know what? I was one of the few people. I enjoyed that show. I thought it was funny. Uh, I actually thought he had very good guests. He asked questions that no one else would, and it was entertaining. Uh, and somewhere along the line, there was a lot of backlash, and I believe he left the network. And then he's come back to be the face of the network. And I give him credit because I've seen clips where you're right. He does say things, and maybe it's because of his protected class that I don't think anyone else would at that network. Yeah, I think I don't know his race plays a role, but he has played the game at ESPN masterfully. He has partnered with an executive there, Dave Roberts, uh, and they have both. Dave Roberts has written Stephen A uh, to a level of power at ESPN. Uh, and some would argue, people, why I'm just being authentic. Many would argue an outside, outsized level of importance that Dave is beyond his uh, the Peter principle. He's beyond yeah. his area of uh, level of competence. Uh, let me finish. And so, I think that Stephen A. and Dave Roberts have formed the kind of partnerships that we saw with. Uh, Sean Hannity, and why can't I remember the name of the executive that Sean Hannity partnered with at Fox News, who eventually, Bill Shine, uh, I'm pretty sure, is, the, uh, is who I'm thinking of. And, and so that's what happens in TV. Talent partners with an executive, they rise to power together, they protect each other, they share their power between the two of them. And so, and again, Dave Roberts, I didn't get into this in the piece, but I, Dave Roberts, from everything that I understand, he's the guy that made the call to execute uh, uh, Rachel Nichols. That's, yeah. that's his dead body. He, 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 he put her in a vacant. He seems to be the henchman. So I, I, I always remember Stephen A. Smith as being the guy that had the greatest source for plug to Allen Iverson. So I guess this guy's is Eric Snow. But, you know, every, everything <laughs> comes to an end. There's, there's a beginning and an end. And look, we're about the same age, Jason, even though I must say I look much younger. But I, Chris Berman, to me, for about 20 years was the face of That's the That's because, ESPN. you know, you're, you're Asian. You know, Asian don't crack. Isn't that what they well, say? Yeah, I'm sorry. admittedly... <laughs> Admittedly, I dye my hair. I get the paint job every couple of weeks. That that plays a factor. But Chris Berman, to me, was the face of ESPN. I remember watching NFL Countdown, NFL Game Day, the Home Run Derby. And now, but then I remember through Deadspin, he became a pariah. And I'm just like, well, I'm just a sports fan. I happen to like Berman. I love the nicknames. I grew up with them. I made up my own. We could recite them by heart. I knew some of his great calls uh, with Robin Roberts, who moved on to great things. But then somewhere along the way, the crown was taken off him 
in a hit piece, one after another, was written by people at Deadspin. And at first, it was kind of funny. But they're, halfway through, I said, wait a minute, what has Chris Berman really done to, to get the ire of these people? I, I certainly think that history repeats itself in a lot of ways. And down the line, eventually, no matter who is the protector for Stephen A., it will happen to him, too. The worm always turns. I'm going to tell you why you're wrong or why I think you're wrong and why it because it should have already happened to Stephen A. if it were going to happen. No, seriously. He, he one. I mean, he doesn't. He's black. He's friends with Sean Hannity. He's got some conservative values. He's heterosexual. These are all things that are negative now. And they would like to get rid of Stephen A, but that would be too greedy. And, and this is going to sound far more critical than I intended to, but it's just the truth. Stephen A is harmless. That's why hmm. they leave him alone. And, be, and he's harmless because he, there's, he's smart, but not too smart. And so he's not dangerous. And, and this will sound uh, narcissistic and, and self-centered or whatever, but, but I'm dangerous. And so the exact same thing, the process they put Chris Berman through, they put me through. Deadspin and the left. And, you know, it, it's why any story that's ever written about me uh, by the corporate media or leftist media, always, I'm controversial. They never want to say I'm award-winning or the most influential columnist uh, in sports writing over the last 20, 30 years. All the, I mean, because again, all these people running around trying to do woke sports journalism, it's just bad imitations of what I was doing in the 1990s and early 2000s. I inspire most. That's why the passion is so great towards me. The negative passion is so great towards me from the black sports journalists that are 10 to 15 years younger than me. They all grew up reading me and wanting to be me, and then Deadspin trained them and, and woke culture trained them to hate me, and they feel like, man, well, how come Whitlock ain't on board with the, with the BS we're doing? It makes us look bad, but you're right. It's not gonna happen to Stephen A because hmm. he's harmless, and so we'll let them have that. We don't want anybody in that chair who might, you know, at the face of ESPN, who might actually stand up mm -hmm. in a real aggressive way to the woke culture and the lies and the myths and who might stand up and say, hold on, man, we're doing all this for George Floyd. <laughs> Maria, are, are you really this passionate about George Floyd? What if George Floyd knocked on your door today, if they rose him from the dead and knocked on Maria Taylor's door today, she would run screaming to call the police. But she's on because he's dead and harmless because that's what the woke really likes. That's what white liberals really like. Dead, harmless Negroes. They celebrate. I mean, you are Kobe Bryant. And I like, I like what Kobe came to stand for in retirement. But if Kobe Bryant were still alive today, they wouldn't be celebrating him like this. No way. A, a, a black man stand, Muhammad Ali. You know when, they, when, when white liberals really jumped on board with Muhammad Ali? 
when he couldn't talk no more and he was running around with Parkinson's and could barely talk and move. Oh, we love this Negro now. That's the typical white liberal. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I, I want to tell you a story about that. So last year, I'm a big Miami Hurricane fan, and I'm watching the UAB game. It's on the ACC network, which is associated with ESPN. So uh, I'll never forget. I'm with a friend of mine. I'm not going to say his name because he works in Hollywood, but he's black. And so one of the commercials that they played, uh, I think during the first and second quarter, was a WNBA commercial and it was about the protests that they were making. And they showed this montage of the kneeling and the T-shirt with the seven holes in the back to basically pay tribute to uh, Jacob Blake. And my friend is just shaking his head. He's a college-educated guy. And he just says to me, Steve, why are we making him into a martyr? What, what, what are we doing? And he was disgusted by it. But he'll also tell you because he works in the entertainment field, he cannot dare say that even in a private setting to his coworkers because it would ruin his career. So I actually believe, Jason, that there are many more people that agree with you or at least see your point of view to a certain degree. They just may not express it. I'm sure you probably get a lot of DMs telling you, hey, Jason, look, I really love that article, but I can't retweet it. I can't really like it. Uh, I can't give you praise, but I just want you to know we're with you. And I'm just wondering if there's ever going to come a time when people can just say, look, I disagree with this viewpoint. Let me just state the other. I'm not so sure we're there yet, though. And we'll end on that note. My final question is, do you think ESPN's political culture will ever change? Not till the political climate in America does. And this is not a commentary on the current presidency. I don't really care. My life's going to go on one way or the other. Uh, I just wish gas was a little bit cheaper here in Southern California. But again, to go back to your question, until ESPN and the corporate overlords there, the decision makers that have any type of power, really believe that it's safe to go back to some sort of normalcy, I don't see it happening for a while because they're still riding that wave. Now, it's tough for me to say because I don't watch ESPN at all. I really don't. My default network now to have something in the background is the NFL network. And But there used to be a time it was ESPN. I just couldn't really watch that stuff anymore. But until, the, until it is safe uh, for the country as a whole, to not be branded a racist for not being with the right political party. I, I, my, my view is I don't believe ESPN uh, has the guts or will hire people that will actually espouse opposing views. And, and until a certain type of behavior stops being rewarded, we're never going to see the end of it. Steve, let me say this and, and final, and you don't have to respond to it, but I want you watch today's events on the news. I think what's going on in Afghanistan and Cabal right now might be the antithesis of George Floyd, that the fallout from this global embarrassment in Afghanistan may have impact in pushing the culture back the other direction. That's my hope. That's what we're gonna talk about uh, tomorrow is this may be so embarrassing and wake people up to the point 
if you watch the events that have been going on in the news this afternoon and on into the night in Afghanistan, I'm hoping that we're going to turn this tragedy into something that inspires us to go a different direction. And, and I, I'm hoping to, we're going to look back on Thursday, August the 25th or 6th? <laughs> August the 26th as a turning point. And, and, and so, uh, Shah Maria Law, this may be the last day <laughs> that we have to adhere to Shah Maria Law. No, let me just say this. One last thing about Rachel Nichols. It reminds me of that line from George Orwell in Animal Farm. All the animals are equal. Some are just more equal. And I think Rachel found that out, unfortunately. And then Maria Taylor, I don't know what her career is going to be, but we'll see if she actually did hit what we call the woke-off home run. And as for the coverage of Afghanistan, Jason, I'll be (laughs) blunt. I am skeptical because the way they will frame the events – says it all and i'll just leave you with this after working at espn for a couple of years i was i'm actually more skeptical and i don't want to use the term fake news because i know that's very incendiary but after working at espn for two years and going through their editorial process and how stories are edited and pieced out and assignments are given out and how we frame stories or forced to do it I actually trust mainstream corporate media less than ever after going through the process. That's my big takeaway of my experience at ESPN. Let's just put it that way. Steve, we're going to call that a woke off final comment. (laughs) I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much. Anytime, Jason. Thanks for having me. Oh, that was awesome. All right. That was so good. I feel a little hungry. You get tired of the same meats that you get from your local grocery store? I know I do. I don't want food that's just okay anymore. I want something that's better. Amazing even. even. That's why I use our good friends over at Good Ranchers. Good Ranchers provides 100% American farm-raised chicken, beef, pork right to the safety and security of your front door. Individually seasoned and wrapped Good Ranchers will provide a truly delicious meal for the entire family to enjoy. If you subscribe, you will get $20 off and free express shipping. Get steakhouse quality for less than $5 per meal. Go to GoodRanchers.com fearless to get $20 off and free express shipping. That's GoodRanchers.com fearless. All right, welcome back. Amazing interview with uh, Steve Kerr. I'm still on a high. All right, let's roll out to Chicago, see if Greg Couch can keep it going. Greg Couch, the foremost authority in sports media as it relates to tennis. And something big happened already uh, this week in the tennis world, Serena Williams drops out of the U.S. Open, and Couch, again, former low-level tennis pro, now a college coach of tennis, the best sports writer uh, writing about tennis in America, he's saying that it's time for 39-year-old Serena Williams to retire. Greg, why should Serena Williams retire? Because it's been five years watching her chase this stupid record to get one last major that Margaret Court holds the record of 24 majors. Serena has 23. 
And Serena just isn't the same anymore. The way we got to know Serena was watching this tough, young, strong woman. I can still picture her at Wimbledon when she has that one point where she goes down on one knee and pumps her fist and screams. That's what we saw. That's what, that's what we all fell in love with, Serena Williams. Strong, muscular, tough woman. And now what she is is, you know, she's, her body's breaking down, her mind's breaking down, her guts are breaking down. She's gone five years without winning a major now. I mean, she will have by the time she gets to the Australian Open. When she was 35, she won the Australian Open. That was the oldest a woman's ever been winning a major. She's not going to win one at 40. And I just don't like seeing her be this sort of weakened person. I mean, she can walk around and continue to play and, and be sort of a ceremonial player, and people can love her and, and idolize her, but it's just not the same. And I think she's going to create new memories to, that are not as good to replace the old memories that were fantastic, and, and I don't want to see that happen. And like Willie Mays, for people remember that, when he's sort of tripping around in the outfield, and, you know, not everyone can be Tom Brady. Not everyone can be Phil Mickelson and play into their 50s, especially when you're in a sport like tennis, which is a quick twitch sport. And you've got to run fast. And I just I just don't want to see her come back and look like this. So I'd just like to see her go right now. OK, she's not going to, according to you, she's not going to catch Margaret Court in terms of number of majors. But is Serena still the GOAT? Is she the greatest of all time? I think so, but I mean, Steffi Graf has a pretty good argument. Serena's won one more major than Steffi. Steffi had, I think, 370 weeks at number one, and Serena had 40 or 50 weeks less than that, you know. But I mean, so who's the best player on the court? I, I do think it's Serena, but I think Serena meant a lot more to the sport than Steffi did. Serena changed a lot of things. I mean, the, all the other women on the tour started bulking up to try to match her muscle. And, you know, we see a lot of black women on the tour now. And women's sports, I mean, tennis is the one mainstream sport for women year round. And, you know, she's also had a lot to do with, you know, body image issues for young girls. So, I mean, the body of work is is more impressive for Serena than Steffi Graf. But, uh, yeah, I do think she's the best ever. Maybe that was the number she needed to get. She needed to get that 23rd major, which surpassed Steffi by one. So, um, yeah, I'll go with Serena, but it's not, a, it's not a slam dunk. That's interesting about Steffi Graf. It's the first I've heard someone of, of, of your expertise on tennis kind of give me the difference. And I, I didn't realize that Steffi Graf had been number one for more weeks than, Steve, uh, than Serena. And by a significant number... And so it sounds like perhaps, and you fill in the gaps here for me, Steffi Graf may be a bit more consistent than Serena Williams. And, and is that related perhaps to uh, Serena's size and, and maybe not always being in top tip, in tip top shape? Yeah, there is that. I mean, you know, but to be honest, when Steffi Graf, once Monica Sellers came along, she started looked like she was going to surpass Steffi Graf, and then Monica got stabbed by a fan, and and she her career went down the drain after that. But Steffi, you know, Steffi won all four majors in one year. She won all four majors and the Olympic gold in one year. This is not anything that Serena's ever done. Serena, you know, the, the, the times have changed even just in the last few years because in the old days, just counting majors was not anything that anyone did. They used to want to be number one all the time. Now it's just a matter of counting majors. You know, Serena used to, to be honest, she used to win the majors and actually lose on purpose in this lesser tournaments. And people get mad when I say that. But so, you know, you have to factor those things in. 
she didn't want to play the lesser tournament. She, but they would be required, so she'd show up and lose in the first round. And one time she was in Cincinnati. I was at the tournament. She pulled out and said she had a bad ankle and she couldn't play and didn't feel well. And then next thing we know, she's posting videos of herself on a on a roller coaster at the amusement park in Cincinnati that same day. So, you know, there are a lot of things to factor in, you know, but as far as Serena's uh, conditioning, I mean, yeah, when her sister died, she even talked about how she ate donuts, you know, every day for however long and showed up at the Australian Open very heavy. And she actually won that Australian Open. But there were times when she wouldn't, wasn't staying in shape. And uh, again, I mentioned earlier that I thought that the body image uh, relevancy to her <clears throat> is, is is important and and I think that's actually one of the issues I had with her when she was a little younger and I got in some trouble from what I wrote. She actually at one point listed herself at five foot nine and 134 pounds, which is ridiculous. She probably weighs at least 50, 60 pounds more than that. And it's not that I'm saying she's fat or anything, but she has enormous legs, muscular legs, and she's a larger woman. And so I actually wrote some columns back then saying, you know, don't lie about your weight. There are young girls out there who need to see you as a large woman. And that's a role model as somebody who can win Wimbledon and win a lot of money and be intelligent and be beautiful and, and you know, change a lot of things. And a lot of little girls don't need to see that championship on that body and say, oh, that's what 5'9 and 134 looks like. I need to. That's what I need to be. So I actually think back then, I wrote this back then, I think that Nike should have actually run a campaign and said, do you want to know what 194 pounds looks like or, or whatever Serena weighed, actually weighed? Here's what it looks like. Here's the Wimbledon title. Here's my great shots. Here's some muscles. Here's a lot of money. And I think back then, they should have, they could have, she could have done a lot more even than she did. They could have actually made her like a, a new model for Miss America. So not every woman has to be five foot 10 and 105 pounds and dangerous size zero. So, I mean, there's a lot to do with Serena's weight and a lot of image issues that even she had. She used to talk about how she didn't even like to look in the mirror because she didn't know if she was pretty or not. So, you know, she fought all of this and she could have helped more girls than she did, but she did do a lot there too. You know, listening to that, it's probably the same thing I've done for a lot of sports writers because I don't <laughs> like looking in the mirror either. Uh, <laughs> so, and this is what, you know, six foot, 198 pounds looks like on a sports writer. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> what? On a more uh, serious note, uh, I, you just again educated me even more about like back in Steffi Graf's time, being number one was a priority. It's not anymore. Everybody counts majors. What was the level of competition like during Steffi Graf's time versus Serena? Who faced better competition? Serena faces a lot more depth of competition. There might be 70 or 80, 90 players who are, who are good players now. But in Steffi's era, she faced Martina Navratilova and Chris Evert and Jennifer Capriati and Arantxa Sanchez. So I think the top of the game back then may have actually been better than the top of the game is right now. I mean, most people wouldn't really agree with me on that. But I think that the women's game now also has no diversity, uh, diversity of play, I mean, where they, they all play exactly the same style. I mean, Serena had a lot of muscle, and so all these women started bulking up and let's say, let's see if we can outmuscle Serena. Let's see if we can outmuscle Venus. You know, back then you had different sized women. Some people were, you know, short and muscular and strong and tall and all these different body shapes and styles. So they had to play different styles of games. And so you had to sort of learn a lot of different aspects of, this, of the game itself. And for, in fact, there are a lot of other different issues too. Back then, 
Wimbledon's grass courts, which are fast, were even faster than they are now. And the slow courts and clay at the French Open were much slower than they are now. Now the courts are a lot more similar and you, you don't have to have a lot of different skills to actually manipulate different types of styles of courts. I mean, it's I'm probably getting too much into the woods with this stuff, but, uh, you know. <laughs> well, you're actually not. You're actually, it's fascinating. <laughs> and and I, it's like additional information. Because I think a lot of the conversation around Serena and who's the greatest in tennis and all that, I, I think it's really at low level debate. Well, she's got X number of majors and so-and-so has X number of majors. No one, the nuance of holding on to the number one and that being a priority. Uh, again, more talent at the top, but Serena's facing more depth. All of this stuff is nuanced and, and very fascinating. I'll, I'll end with, not end, because I'm gonna ask you a question about something else, but I'm gonna ask you, do you think Serena reached her full potential on the court. Oh boy, I wish you wouldn't have thrown that on the court there at the end. Uh, I think she reached her potential as far as how long she could last, okay? There are a lot of criticisms of her early on in her career. In fact, Chris Everett wrote a letter to Tennis Magazine about it back then. Uh, that she wasn't focused enough on tennis and that she had too many other interests. She was into her nails. She was into style. She was into fashion. She, you know, but Serena used to say, if I just focus only on tennis, I'm going to burn out. And we've seen a lot of athletes now, you know, 20 years old, 22 years old in the Olympics where these people are burning out now. You know, even Naomi Osaka, 22 years old or whatever she is. I mean, is she going to last 39 to be 39 years old? So I don't think so. So it's a little, I mean, did Serena reach her potential? You know, I think she probably played as well as she could play. I think she could have maybe won another major or two along the way. But if she had done what I'm talking about, she may have burned out and been gone 10 years ago. So it's it's a tough question. So I'm going to say, to answer a yes or no question with a yes or no, I'm going to say yes. She did make it. She, she won as many majors. Uh, she lasted as long as she could have lasted. <laughs> We'll end on this note, and you don't have to have a great answer, but I just want to ask, <laughs> what did you think about my rant about ESPN and them being trapped by politics? Uh, what did you think of any of that? I, you, I'm sure you've met Rachel Nichols at some point. Nichols used to be out there working as a journalist uh, back in the day. What did you think about my rant about ESPN and Rachel Nichols? I thought it was right on the money. I think, though, that you know, once ESPN sort of let mob the mob in on mob rule, it's hard to get them back out the door. So you've asked a few people now about whether they're going to stop being like this, stop being political. I think ESPN will be stop stop being political once they have find it to be a financially smart move for them. But I think what's kind of cool too, or in, not cool, but interesting, is watching Maria Taylor. She understands this game so well. I mean, it's so in, entrenched in ESPN's culture that Maria Taylor, I mean, you've said in, that, she, you know, she sort of, um, how'd you put it? She sort of felt that she deserve, was deserved reparations and felt that she rep, was she, entitled. Yeah, she entitled. read the That's tea leaves. She looked at the culture at ESPN and how women were being treated and elevated and overpaid and said, wow, I'm about to cash in. Yeah, and it was, I agree with that. And it was also more cynical than that even because she used the mob rule against, you know, against Rachel Nichols, right? She, 
She saw that the mob could attack Rachel Nichols uh, and save Maria Taylor, maybe get Maria more money or, or whatever. And so she threw the mob at Rachel Nichols. And what's kind of ironic is Rachel Nichols' point when she was talking to her agent or whoever that, no, the uh, source, was she was basically saying ESPN is buckling to the mob. And that's why I'm, I'm in danger of losing my show and my job. And then what happened, Maria Taylor leaves and she leaves the mob at the door for Rachel Nichols. And what happens? ESPN buckled to the mob and fired Rachel Nichols. It's it's uh, it's really entrenched deeply in their in their culture. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. That's it for us on a Thursday. That was a I need a cigarette. Felt like I just well, no, I don't I don't want to say that after talking to Greg. But anyway, that was good. That was a good show. Job well done, everyone. Uh, that's tomorrow, I think I hear in my ear. So that that telling me to get out of here, that's the end of the show. We'll see you tomorrow. I want freedom. No negotiation, my system, no relation. We all just wanna have freedom. Sitting on a corner, never been alone. I'm breaking my back for freedom. Bless, we are living, get back. We are receiving all the seed when we all wanna be free. We want freedom. I just want, I wanna be, I just want. I wanna be